Thank you, Richard. Um, now, today's Bible reading is not the whole seven chapters. Um, however, uh, it's taken from chapters uh, Exodus, chapters 25, 28, and 29. Um, and you'll be able to see that on this screen as we go through the different sections we'll cover. So starting with Exodus 25, 1 to 9. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And now from Exodus 28, 1 to 4. Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honour. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration, so he may serve me as priest. These are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests. And now still in Exodus 28, but from verse 29, uh, 29. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Also put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece so they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus, Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. Make the robe of the ephod entirely of blue cloth, with an opening for the head in its centre. There shall be a woven edge like a collar around this opening, so that it will not tear. Make pomegranates of blue, purple and scarlet yarn around the hem of the robe, with gold bells between them. The gold bells and the pomegranates are to alternate around the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. The sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out, so that he will not die. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, as on a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it to attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever their gifts may be. 
It will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. Weave the tunic of fine linen and make the turban of fine linen. The sash is to be the work of an embroiderer. Make tunics, sashes and caps for Aaron's sons to give them dignity and honour. After you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them. Consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Make linen undergarments as a covering for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they will not incur guilt and die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants. This is what you are to do to consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Take a young bull and two rams without defect and from the finest wheat flour make round loaves without yeast, thick loaves without yeast and with olive oil mixed in and thin loaves without yeast and brushed with olive oil. Put them in a basket and present them along with the bull and the two rams. Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Take the garments and dress Aaron with the tunic, the robe of the ephod, the ephod itself, and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him by its skillfully woven waistband. Put the turban on his head and attach the sacred emblem to the turban. Take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics and fasten caps on them. Then tie sashes on Aaron and his sons. The priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. Then you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head. Slaughter it in the Lord's presence at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Take some of the bull's blood and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour out the rest of it at the base of the altar. Then take all the fat on the internal organs, the long lobe of the liver and both kidneys with the fat on them and burn them on the altar. But burn the bull's flesh and its hide and its intestines outside the camp. It is a sin offering. And lastly, from Exodus 29:35 to 46. Do for Aaron and his sons everything I have commanded you, taking seven days to ordain them. Sacrifice a bull each day as a sin offering to make atonement. Purify the altar by making atonement for it and anoint it to consecrate it. For seven days, make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar will be most holy and whatever touches it will be holy. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. With the first lamb, offer a tenth, tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil from pressed olives and a quarter of a hin of wine as a drink offering. Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. 
For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Thanks, Lisa. You would know it, but Lisa filled in for that reading at very late notice. Um, so <laughs> thank you for that. Not the best week to do it, maybe. <laughs> uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, we're going to be covering Exodus chapters 25 to 31 this morning. So if you keep your Bibles or your devices open to that general ballpark of the Bible, we'll, we'll head along through there. That'll help you to follow it along. There's also an outline on the leaflets. And the parts that Lisa has just read for us will be the main parts in that long sweep that we'll look at. And the first, the first point you'll see on the outline is a question that I'm sure a number of us are, are thinking right now, um, maybe a bit more politely and a bit less bluntly than this, but why should we care? Why should we care? What we've just read about worship back in those days under Israel is completely different to, to what we do here in the Allgate Memorial Hall today. Like you look around and you see that there's no tabernacle, there's no gold, no ephods, no sacred garments, no incense, no animal sacrifices. And so we might wonder, how is Exodus 25 to 31 relevant for us today? Well, the answer is that God's aim in these chapters matters a lot. Uh, it mattered a lot for Israel back then and it mattered a lot for us, it matters a lot for us now as well. If you have a look at the last couple of verses that Lisa read for us, chapter 29, verse 45 to 46, God says, I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. One of my big personal prayer points this year has been that I would, that I would know God better. Not just that I would know more things about God, but that I would actually know God better, that I'd have a deeper relationship with him. I hope that's a desire that you have as well. And here we see that God wants his people to know him. He wants to dwell with us, and he is doing what it takes to make that happen, doing what's needed to make that happen. See, God does, we think about Exodus, and we think about the Ten Commandments, but what we see is that God doesn't just give us commandments about how to live, like a, like a school principal type of God. He wants to be in a real relationship with his people. And that, that's not just the story of Exodus, that's the story of the whole Bible. That's the story all the way from creation to end times, which is a story that we're all very much part of. God wants to be in relationship with us. And this passage, it shows us the privilege of God dwelling with us. Exodus 25 to 31 is kind of like a pair of glasses that corrects the low view that we have of God and what it means to be in relationship with God. If you've followed along so far in Exodus, we've um, picking up halfway through a series that we started about a year, a year or so ago. And so far, we've seen that God has brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. They've seen his holy presence on the mountain. He's given them his laws to obey. He's made a covenant with them. 
And now Moses has gone up on a mountain for 40 days to hear from God. And we'll see three things about what it means for God to dwell with us. Uh, Two things here in Exodus under the Old Covenant and one important thing under the New Covenant. And those are the three points that you'll see on the outline there. The first one is God is holy and so a suitable meeting place is needed. God's awesome presence is quite simply too much for the people. We saw earlier that Israel were told to stay away from the mountain when God was displaying his glory there. They were were terrified by God's presence. So God can't just walk around the campsite among them. The right meeting place is needed. And so God tells Moses, chapter 25, verse 8 to 9, to, to make a tabernacle, a dwelling place. But not just any dwelling place. It's got to be the exact pattern that God shows to Moses, something befitting of God's glory. As we read through the details of its design, we see that there's, there's a lot of gold, there's a lot of precious stones, there's numerous references to skilled workers and high-quality work, there's sacred incense, there's anointing oil that it can't be used for any purposes other than worship of God. And so God's presence in this place is worthy of full honour. There are a number of similarities to the Garden of Eden, where, of course, God dwelt with Adam and Eve. And the purpose of this tabernacle is that God will dwell among his people. But because God is holy, there's a a graded level of access that's needed. Now, there should be a picture on the the slides of what this, sort of a picture of what this tabernacle would have looked like. And you can see there's there's a courtyard around the outside. It's about... 50 metres by 25 metres, so to to compare, this hall is 20 metres by 10 metres, if that gives you an idea of size. And there's a a section in the courtyard, that big tent called the Most Holy Place, and which only the priests are allowed to enter, and with, with very strict measures. And then within the Holy Place is the Most Holy Place separated behind a curtain. Uh, this, this is the place that holds the ark, which has the tablets of the law inside, and only the high priest can enter this place, and only once a year. And the priests could die if they approached the holy place or the most holy place in an unworthy manner. So it was a bit of a, bit of a high-pressure occupation, that one. Um, so for the Israelites who are, who are under this covenant, and particularly for the, the poor high priest who bears the, the weight of the whole people one day a year going in there, it would have been obvious that to approach God is no small thing. Now, from conversations I've had and surveys I've read, even in the Western world today, most people believe in a God of some sort. You know, there's, it's a minority of people that flat out refuse to believe that there's any God that exists. But we have too small a view of God. We have too small a view of God. I don't know if you've ever sat outside and just watched a thunderstorm as it, as it belts down or looked at stars in the night sky or watched waves crashing into rocks on the shore or just looked at countryside views that spread out as far as the eye can see. Well, God created it all just by his word. He was there in the beginning. He's ruled over all events of history, the the all-knowing, all-powerful, flawless God. And so the thought of people approaching him is extraordinary. 
If I told you that I was going to fly to Canberra tomorrow and have a chat with the Prime Minister, you'd, you'd laugh at me, wouldn't you? Because I'm simply not important enough to approach someone in his position. So how much more to approach the God of the whole universe? If we read through Exodus 25 onwards and we think that the detail of the tabernacle design seems a bit excessive, well, it just shows us the privilege and the significance of approaching this holy God. Especially, point two on the outline, because we're sinful. We're sinful, and so our guilt must be dealt with. God wants to dwell with his people, but our sin is repulsive to him. And if you think about it, we're repulsed by things that are wrong, aren't we? We all are. When we see injustice or cruelty or unpleasantness or, or anything that's wrong, we, it repulses us. We, we don't want anything to do with it. We want to be separated from it. And we're guided in this by our definition of what's right and what's wrong. But God's sense of what's right and wrong is, is perfect. It's fine-tuned. God is the one who defines what is right and wrong because he's the one who created everything. And because he's holy, he is rightly sensitive to anything that's wrong. It's repulsive to him. And there's something wrong with people that God can't stand, which is sin. It's the rebellion in our hearts against him. It's wanting to be my own ruler, wanting to do life my way. And even when we try to obey God, our hearts lead us away from him. And so a holy God can't just happily dwell with sinful people because the relationship has been distorted. It's been broken. In fact, if you need any more evidence of that, we'll see in a couple of weeks' time that while Moses is up here having this, this conversation with God, the people are down at the base of the mountain worshipping a golden calf. So sin leaves us guilty before God. And this guilt needs to be dealt with before God can dwell with us in a restored relationship. And so for that reason, Israel had the priests. They had Aaron, Moses' brother, as the, the high priest, and his sons underneath him as, as the priests. When the high priest came before God, what he would do is he would carry the names of the tribes of Israel on his clothing. That is, he was representing everyone in Israel as he approached God. He was mediating for them. He was bearing their guilt. And there were animal sacrifices that were made, both for the ordination of the priests as they began their roles and, and for their everyday duties as well. And so the priests would lay their hands on the animals so that these sacrifices, they bore the collective guilt of the people as it was mediated by the priests. So the priests were, were carrying the, the weight of the people's guilt and they were passing that on to the sacrifices so that atonement could be made with the people before God. And when we're talking about atonement, we're talking about a restoration of a relationship. We're talking about a price being paid and anger being dealt with. Now, when you think about what a violent process this would have been, how gruesome the altar and the surrounds of the temple would have been, or sorry, the tent of meeting would have been, it shows us, doesn't it, that it's a big deal for sinful people to approach a holy God. Atonement for sin is costly because of the serious nature of sin and the holiness of God. Now, when I think about 
the depths of my heart, the things that I know about myself that nobody else knows, the things that are never going to get used for a sermon illustration, the, the thought of approaching the pure and holy God of the Bible who knows the worst things about me, well, it's a pretty sobering thought. So this was Israel's relationship with God under the old covenant. They've been redeemed from slavery to obediently worship God, and this is how God dwells with them through a complex system of worship, sacrifice, and limited access. Now, it, probably, it seems a bit dissatisfying on one level, doesn't it? Just only having the high priest who's able to, to complete the relationship. But in light of who God is and who they are, it's still incredibly gracious. You know, God is under no obligation whatsoever to dwell with them, but he wants to. And he finds a way that allows for his holiness, and their sin. But there's better to come. There's better to come. Centuries later, when Israel is established as a nation, a temple is built. It's an impressive, permanent structure which replaces the tabernacle. The tabernacle, of course, had to be disassembled and reassembled as Israel travelled through the desert. But even with this temple, sacrifices are still needed. There's still limited access in the temple. And so this tension of a holy God dwelling with sinful people still remains. Eventually, the temple is destroyed, it's rebuilt, the ark is lost in the process. But the way God dwelt with his people was about to change forever. Because under the new covenant, Jesus is Lord. And so meeting with God looks very different for us today. See, in Jesus, God came as a man dwelling among people, fulfilling the greater reality that the, the tabernacle and the temple were pointing to, God dwelling among people. When Jesus died on the cross, we read in Matthew's gospel that the temple curtain at that moment was torn. This curtain that blocked access to the most holy place was torn. So access to God at that moment was made possible for all people. If we read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the big message that, it, that it's putting out there is that Jesus fulfills every part of the old covenant sacrificial system. Jesus was the high priest who Aaron could never be, one who never sinned. Jesus was the sacrifice that none of those animals could ever be, one that was sufficient to cover all sins for all people all the time. In Hebrews chapter 9, the, the writer of the letter, he reminds his readers about what these worship regulations were like under the old covenant. He reminds them of the tabernacle, the ark, this inner room that only the high priest could enter once a year, and even then only after blood had been shed. But then he reminds them that Jesus has entered the most holy place by his own blood. He's the mediator of a new covenant. Let's pick it up from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages 
to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And so even though it was once only the high priest who could enter the most holy place into God's presence, we read a few verses later in Hebrews that we can all have confidence to enter this most holy place. Why? By the blood of Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and church, you might not go to church regularly, you might still be working out who Jesus is and what church and Christianity are all about, well, this is it. We have access to God. We have a relationship with God, not because we're worthy of it, because you know, we're, we're no better than people were back then, and God is no less holy than he was back then. But we have access to God because Jesus died to make us clean in God's sight. Jesus took on himself all that is wrong with us, so that if our trust is in him, if we've accepted his offer of forgiveness, we enter into a relationship with God. If this is all a bit new to you or you're not, not quite sure about it, please join us for Easter next weekend. Come along on Good Friday as we hear about why Jesus died and why it makes all the difference. And on Easter Sunday as well as we celebrate Jesus being raised from the dead and, and all the difference that that makes. We'd love to have you along. Now you might have picked up those last few words of Hebrews chapter 9 that I read. Jesus will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. I mentioned before that the pattern of the tabernacle that God gave to Moses had a lot of similarities to the Garden of Eden back in Genesis. But that's not all. It, was also, it also bears a lot of similarities to the vision of heaven that we see in Revelation chapter 21, right at the end of the Bible. In fact, we read in Hebrews that the tabernacle was just a copy of heaven, which is why God gives such specific design instructions for it, because the tabernacle represents heaven, except that heaven will be much better, much better. We're told that there's no temple that's needed in heaven because God will be there. God is dwelling with his people right there. There's no lamp needed in heaven because Jesus is the lamp. Jesus is the one who shines the light for us. In the vision of heaven, the walls of heaven are thicker than the entire length of the tabernacle in Exodus. This is where God will dwell with his people forever. With none of the brokenness of sin, none of the distance from God that sin brings. The tabernacle was simply a small taste of heaven. It was meant to show us what it means for God to dwell with his people, and it was meant to make us long for a time when he'll dwell with us perfectly. And even now, as we await heaven, God dwells with us both individually and collectively by his Holy Spirit. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the church is God's temple. The church is where God's spirit dwells. It's why in Hebrews, when we're told that we have confidence to enter the most holy place, the next thing we're told is not to give up meeting together. Not to give up meeting together. Because church is not simply where God's people meet together, but where God meets with us as well. I hope you have a high view of church. 
and what it means for us to meet together because God does. Now, I started off this morning by asking, why should we care about a passage that seems so completely different to the way that we do church on a Sunday here? And I hope you can see that there's much in Exodus chapter 25 to 31 that we should care about. God has graciously provided a way to dwell with his people, allowing both for his holiness and for our sin as well. This extraordinarily complex, particular, and let's be honest, gruesome system of worship that Israel had helps us to grasp the magnitude of God dwelling with us. It corrects a low view of God and the privilege of our relationship with him. And it helps us to appreciate the access to God that we have under the new covenant. To see that Jesus is the greater tabernacle. He's the greater high priest. He's the greater sacrifice. And because of him, we can come before God. We can speak to God. We can call him Father. We can pour out our hearts to him. We can build our lives on him. We can be assured of his forgiving love. And we can look forward to dwelling with him forever. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on a part of your word that uh, perhaps is hard for us to read, uh, perhaps too detailed and seemingly irrelevant for us to, to take on board, we pray that you would help us to, to reflect on this tabernacle, to reflect on this worship, and to see just how amazing it is that a holy God would choose to dwell with sinful people and that a holy God would be able to dwell with sinful people. Please help us to grasp the privilege that it is to be your people in relationship with you, to grasp your great love and mercy in sending Jesus to die in our place, for his blood to wash us clean, so that we don't have to cower from your presence, we don't have to long for your presence, but that we can come into that most holy place of a relationship with you, because Jesus died for us. Please help us to live with the joy of that privilege, the joy of knowing that Jesus paid it all for us. Amen. Our God is massive and powerful. He is holy. He is a consuming fire. And we are feeble, broken shattered creatures who always fall short of his perfection. We're going to take a few moments now just to quietly reflect to ourselves and speak to God for ourselves um, about the, the ways that we have fallen short of God's glory just in the last few days, in the last week, uh, just taking the time to reflect on how um, he has expected so much for us and prepared us for such greatness uh, and yet in our brokenness and our rebellion and our sin. Uh, we are unable to live up to his standards. Bring those things before God now, uh, and in a few moments, I'll bring us back together.